Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Welcome to, again, another episode of the Protect and Serve podcast with me, your host, Oliver Lawrence. Look at this, Series 3, 
episode five already and already five incredible guests not to mention that uh, i appear to have appeared on this podcast myself as the guest of episode four and you know massive thanks again to rory gagan for coming on as being the uh, celebrity host to ask me some of the difficult questions about my life in policing but more importantly today's guest you know we've spoken about in in every series elements of the challenges that policing brings with it in the front line and you know, often the boys and girls on the front line who go to those high-risk incidents often need to call for significant backup and support from our highly trained firearms officers, whether it's um, CTSFOs or armed response officers, who we classically see driving around in, in big BMWs, uh, all kitted up to the hilt, ready to deal with some of a myriad of different scenarios which can present themselves. But there are occasions when officers have to make the decision to end the life of another because of the risk that they pose to either themselves, the public, or anybody else. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that representation that we don't often see in front of the cameras, which is going on in the background, not only for the officers in question, but for their families and the officers that they're working with at the time. So without further ado, let me welcome Mark Williams to the podcast. Mark, welcome. How are you this afternoon? I'm good, thanks, Ollie. Thank you very much for inviting me to come on. Fantastic. No, absolute honour. Like every good detective, I like to start right at the beginning of somebody's story. Now, I note in your CV that you've sent me across here, there's a period there between 82 and 87 where you served in the Grenadier Guard. So you've come from an incredibly disciplined environment, moved from the from, from soldiering into policing. But I wanted to capture some of the essence of what soldiering gave to you as a foundation as, as to you, the person. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, my background, I mean, I guess I, I came from a broken home. Uh, my parents divorced when I was very young. I didn't do very well at school. I, I left school literally with an O-level in pottery, which my mother, my late mother, used to say, you always need pots. Um, uh, and I didn't do very well, and I, I, I you know, but I, but I, but I liked sports. I was always into football and all the other sports. Um, but I had to think about a career. I had to think about what I was going to do, and I always wanted to join um, the police. Even then, my granddad was a police officer in that police, um, but alas, I didn't have the qualifications. So I, I went off and joined the army, and um, I actually went to the selection centre at Sutton Coalfield, as it was then. And uh, didn't get enough points on the score to get military police, which I wanted. So I got offered infantry, which was like basically that's where you go in. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, it'd be nice to do something that I was aware of. For example, the guards, you know, the different palaces and things like that. And I joined the Grenadier Guards and, um, and I had a fantastic time. Five years uh, in the Guards, met some amazing uh, friends, um, went to Northern Ireland, went to Germany, um, based in London for a bit as well, but I had a wonderful time. And it taught me a lot about discipline, um, looking after myself, uh, being as part of a team. Uh, and to this day, I'm, you know, I have to warm in my own shirts and I have to ball my own shoes and things like that, you know, so I'm very funny about things like that. So it gave me a great foundation for discipline. Um, uh, and then literally I had two weeks off when I left the army and joined the police and went to Hendon um, as a recruit. 
So I often talk about the challenges that are faced when one marches through or walks through the gates of Hendon in terms of this sudden disciplined environment where you're imposed upon by sergeants that uh, take you through this process of understanding the rigor that is the office of constable but for you that discipline that routine those early starts was already really in your dna from your experience in the army i assume that would have been a huge help or stepping stone into another disciplined environment Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, I loved Hendon and actually Hendon was like going to a luxury hotel. I was given my own room uh, with a sink in it. Um, and um, and when we first got there, we were in civilian clothing and the uh, we all formed up on the drill square or wherever we were at the time. And the drill sergeant walked along and asked about um, any ex-servicemen present. And I knew what he was getting at about because we all had to learn drill. Uh, and he walked along the line and he went to one guy, you know, what regiment were you? Parachute regiment. Yeah, yeah, step back. And, and this drill sergeant was actually, actually Welsh Guards, ex-Welsh Guards. And he got to me, he said, um, what about you? Where were you? I said, oh, Grenadier Guards on. And he went, come out here. Like that. And I had to assist him with demonstrating the drill movements in front of about 150 new recruits, um, which I loved, you know, and... Um, so I went from, you know, a very disciplined environment to another disciplined environment, although the policing wasn't quite as disciplined, I'd say, as the army. Um, it was a great um, foundation for me, as I said before, coming from the services to join the police. It really helped me. And it helped me because I struggled academically when I joined the police. You know, I, I really, you know, for me, to just to pass the entrance examination to get in the police was an achievement. Uh, and, and I wasn't joking, I literally left school with no qualifications. Of course, going to Hendon, I'm then told we've got exams every week and then it ends up with a final exam at the end of your probation. If you don't pass that, you don't go through. And, and you know, I, I basically cracked myself for most of my two-year probation, thinking, worrying about exams and right through Hendon and through my probationary period, worrying about the academic side. Um, so, yeah, that was... But, but the army, uh, my military background, definitely helped me deal with other stuff. So I had a lot of confidence dealing in role plays, you know, with scenarios. And that confidence obviously helped me when I finally went out on the streets um, when I was posted. It must have been an incredibly proud day for you, though. Once you've achieved all that study, you've completed the exams and you've done your probationary period, to graduate, you know, and and to be, you know, in the office of constable, all this responsibility, I assume family and friends must have been incredibly proud of what you'd achieved. Oh, I think for sure. I mean, the, you know, the day I got my warrant card and realised that I was actually going to be a police officer, you know, and I'd, I'd done what I'd done. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I look back now and it's, you know, back in 1987 that was, and it still just gives me a buzz, you know, thinking about I did achieve something there. And I had a wonderful career and um, I was honoured to be able to serve as a constable um, in the Metropolitan Police Service in my, in my instance. Uh, and yes, it was to me personally, it was a great achievement. So let's talk about those early years. Often I describe with my uh, former guests that have come on the show that it's not until you step out onto the road away from the scenario based training that you're that you're provided and realize how challenging policing can be from time to time from the the domestic incidents that you go to to try and resolve to the sudden deaths and incidents of trauma. How were those first few weeks and months? in your early life as a police officer coming to terms with some of the challenges that you would face? That's a really good question because I think something we sometimes forget as well because I came out as a fresh-faced 22-year-old out of Hendon to go to... I was posted to Wandsworth, a very busy borough uh, in London. 
And suddenly you're dealing with, for example, um, domestic situations of people in their 30s, you know, 40s, 50s, and you go there as a police officer and you're trying to advise people about basically how to run their lives, you know. And likewise, we should never underestimate the amount of authority we have when you stop a motorist, when you stop anybody and search them or, you know, want to speak to them about stuff. You know, there is... And there was a huge amount of respect then in those days, I'm guessing, um, compared to maybe compared to now. But um, huge responsibility. And I remember most of my first things I went to, my first arrest, you know, my um, first drink driver, first sudden death. I mean, you know, I'd never touched a dead body before, before I joined the police service. And, I, you know, I remember going to the post-mortems that we used to go to during our um, street duties that we used to do and things like that. So it was a completely new world to me. Uh, and it's funny because when I look back now about things that maybe phased me when I was young in service, probably um, the death side more than anything phased me. You know, I wasn't too worried about punch-ups and fights, you know, and violence, things like that. But I used to have a real, I used to struggle with, you know, sudden deaths and seeing elderly people or families distraught and things like that because I lost their loved ones. That is really difficult for me and um, something that resonates still to this day, you know, when we have issues of what, you know, with the PFOA now. Um, so, yeah, that was the only thing that really I struggled with. I, I loved all the other stuff. I love the cars, you know, I always wanted to be an advanced driver. Um, I love the adrenaline of going to a call or not knowing what's going to be there at the end, uh, the camaraderie, everything. Um, so I had, I had nine years at Wandsworth. I had nine fabulous years there. You, know, you spoke about their dealing and, and coming to terms with, you know, challenging situations around scenes of death and and dealing with sort of domestics. Were, were, was there a point in those early years where you were suddenly able to sort of compartmentalise the exposure to those incidents? Did you have people at home that you could debrief to to talk about where it was appropriate, what you were experiencing, the emotions? How how was it like back in those days in, in the late 80s, early 90s in terms of awareness around mental health and the challenges of talking about stuff because we often talk about going down the pub and having a couple of pints and talking amongst colleagues and we talk about this canteen culture where you could debrief with the area car driver and the senior officers on the team what was it for you that allowed you to be able to make sure that those emotions didn't get the better of you well I was blessed because I went to a relief as it was called then a team now at Wandsworth where there were some quite experienced officers um and people I keep in contact with to this day, you know, uh, and they they were amazingly supportive. But we didn't have a post-incident procedure after something, you know, a death or, or, or serious injury. Uh, we didn't have things like that. We didn't have an occupational health unit like we've got now, you know. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it was we went down the pub literally after the early turn, after the late turn. Uh, and we debriefed stuff between ourselves because as a relief or team, we paraded together and there was quite a number of us and we were able to discuss things and talk about things. So I don't think there was, a, there was any of this macho crap or anything like that about, you know, well, I've ex-army, I can do anything. You know, we did generally talk about stuff and I think um, we just got through it. And I'm, I, I'm very, very fortunate, very fortunate that I came through my police service, you know, reasonably unscathed. I, I, there's nothing really that haunts me from any time in my police service of what I saw or what I did. Um, probably more, the, the, the things that do haunt me more are the way some of my colleagues were treated. That, that haunts me, you know, I, I saw what they went through. But me personally, I was pretty unscathed and I am 
I am very fortunate that I can compartmentalise issues that happen in my life. You know, I'm very good at that about, like, I need to move on from that, put that to one side. And that helps, but not everyone is able to do that. And, and I completely get that as well. Can we talk about briefly what what culture was like for you back then? Because obviously a lot has been spoken about, um, you know, we've had the Casey review. Um, our parliamentary and diplomatic protection teams have a review coming out today as we speak. You know, a lot's been spoken about culture and being able to police each other and be able to sort of challenge poor or bad behaviour. What was sort of the culture like for you back then, you know, in terms of, the people around you, the work that you were doing, you know, uh, how did you tackle maybe or challenge bad behaviour? And that's an excellent question because I think it's right that we we address these issues about what it was like then and what it's like now. And I think, you know, there were times that I, uh, I, I would say in my career, Ollie, there was probably two occasions that I had to challenge people. I, I, I won't mention what they were because it would be unfair on, on people or, you know, just to say what they were. But I challenged people because I was, um, I consider myself a fair and honest police officer. I treated everyone the same. I don't care what background they came from, what colour they were, what religion they were. A baddie, a baddie was a baddie and a goodie was a goodie. You know, that's the way I looked at things. But there are, and that applies to police officers as well. And there were police officers that had a reputation. There were police officers that you stayed away from. There was police officers that got more complaints than other police officers. Um... Uh, and, you know, they were dealt with, I guess, sir. But, you know, probably in those days, we, we were able to deal with it a bit more robustly than what they do now, that we challenge people. We weren't afraid of challenging people, you know. And, and I had no problem going up to one of my colleagues saying, you're bang out of order, mate. You need to sort your act out. You know, or the next move is we go to the sergeant and the inspector. And in those days, the, the, the skippers, as we call them, and the inspectors were quite ruthless, you know, in the way they dealt with people, you know. Um, so, you know, perhaps we've lost a bit of that now. It's a little bit, you know, gone the other way. But I think, you know, we did challenge. And um, the other thing we should never forget in any walk of life, it's like when we look at the history of our countries and things like that, is that things were different then. You know, people were different then. So society was different then. We didn't have all the social media. We didn't have all the, you know, the, the arcade games, you know, the things that kids play and things like that. Things were different then. Uh, and um, and of course things change and people change as the years go on. You know, I think my, my observation has been that I think life was just uh, will appear to be a lot more simpler in the sense of WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups and as you say, social media and the involvement of a twenty-four hour news media cycle and what you and I tweet today could be around the other side of the world in in half an hour if it gets enough traction. So I think you know those challenges that officers face in terms of having you know whereas someone would shout at you if you were if you were policing now you've got mobile phones in your faces and you've got auditors who are challenging you on legislation policy and procedure the dynamic has just shifted so much in in accountability really i suppose is is the crux of it well if you look ollie you know your podcast it probably reaches more police officers than any magazine or whatever the equivalent was you know back in late 80s early 90s you will reach 10 times more people yeah and that's the power of social media uh, and 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 you know that's how it should be that's how our society has changed you know we have to have technology and it's good it's a good thing um so yeah I'm, you know i think you know we we reach more people nowadays in those days it was a bit more insular um but that's how it was and we didn't know any any different did we so it was just we got on with it 
So let's talk about your move then. You know, th- you know, you do your nine years at, at Wandsworth. You know, as you say, incredibly enjoyable years. You learned an awful lot. I would imagine that during those nine years, you would have had exposure and witnessed some of the actions of, of, of firearms officers, which gave you a taste of something that you obviously had an intrigue about and wanted to pursue because you've spent, you obviously a large amount, if not your entire career, in firearms-related policing. Tell us about that transition and what drew you into that area of specialisation. Well, there was one particular incident that happened that then basically um, concreted my decision about what I want to do with the rest of my policing career, and that was um, in Putney High Street back in, I think it was August 1994, when I was on duty driving the area car, and my team were on, my relief were on, great men and women, incredible people. And there was an armed robbery in Putney High Street and it came out on the radio and shots fired. And two of my colleagues, uh, um, Mark and Dave, their names, uh, went, were, in, were on the van that day, double crewed on the van. I was driving the area car. I was up the top of Putney at Tippett's Roundabout and we heard shots fired. Uh, and basically there'd been an armed robbery and two, um, uh, two guys had robbed this jeweller's shop, but also fired at um, Dave and Mark uh, when we were in the van, smashed through the window, they fell out on the floor, and one of them stood over Mark and he thought he was going to be shot. It all went completely mad on the radio, uh, and um, I drove like a complete twat to get there. I have to be honest about that now. I drove like I've never driven before. I mean, I say a twat, I probably just drove very well, hopefully. Got us there, and... Uh, it carried on and it, it culminated in the, a police officer being shot, Barry Oldroyd Jones, who was on the ARVs at the time, a friend of mine. Uh, Barry got shot both legs. Uh, and a guy called Dinger, who um, shot at the suspect, who had a sawn off shotgun, uh, and the suspect turned the gun on himself. Uh, and it was just a complete carnage. And I remember running across a footbridge with a territorial uh, support uh, group officer thinking, what am I doing running after this guy with a shotgun who's, who's used it indiscriminately and I'm running after him with a long black acrylic baton. In fact, some of my colleagues pointed their batons at the um, suspect as one shouted, I'm police. That's how brave some of these people are. They're just incredible people. And I remember doing that thinking, no, that's it. Time to go on the armed response vehicles. Uh, and I was, that's when I started applying. Um, but in those days, it was really difficult to get in what was SO19 then. And, and I set my mind on it, it's all I wanted to do. So bear in mind, this is August 94. I didn't join SO19 until February 96. So it took me the best part of 18 months to get there. And I think it was two attempts as well. Um, so it was really difficult. We would have like, there'd be about sort of 30 vacancies and about 300 people would go for it. It was so popular um, because it was a really good job. It was an exciting job. If you like driving, you like, want to see the whole of London, uh, and you like the kind of work they do, um, then it was the place to go, and it was. And um, and when I eventually got accepted, that was a massive high for me, and my second massive high about getting in the police service and then getting to SO19, because it was all I wanted to do. You tell us about the training and the aptitude required of a, of a firearms officer. What was that like for you in terms of that selection process? Was it obvious the type of person they were looking for and then the training that you would undertake to obviously make you a competent firearms officer on the streets of London? Well, first of all, I think um, one should never get confused with the fact that because I was an ex-serviceman, going into SO19 was going to be easy. It was uh, my, the only 
part I took for my military career to being in the uh, to being an armed officer in the, in the police was my respect for weapons, and you'll know that yourself because you were armed in your uh, previous life. Respect for a gun, a, a weapon. Respect for discipline and training, uh, and that was all because the rest of it was completely new. I was going out and policing the public. You know, I'd been in Northern Ireland as a soldier, but it was completely different. This was going out into London uh, and being a police officer, but carrying a gun as well. Uh, the course I was on was a complete hell. I'll have to be honest, I think it was 16 of us started and three of us passed. It was a complete and utter, it was a complete and utter nightmare course. But the standards were extremely high. And, um, you know, when I got told I'd passed, I mean, honestly, I could have cried. It was, <laughs> it was that much of a relief. <laughs> and, uh, and it was Andy Latto who, who told me actually I'd passed. He's a good friend of mine now, very good friend of mine. And I remember him telling me, he goes, you're one of us now. And that was a hugely proud moment for me. And, you know, to this day, you know, being associated with what was SO19 is now SCO19, I think, or MO19 now. You know, that 19 part was a massive part of my life. It's imprinted in me. I've got a tattoo of X1X on it. You know, it was a big part of my life to be in that unit. And to get in there and pass the course was, was an achievement in itself. And I did feel like a survivor at the end of the course, I must admit. But, um, but I'm still friends with the people on the course as well that, you know, I've got through as well. You know, and some came back and got in as well. You know, so it was, it was, it was great. Great achievement. Is, is it an environment where people uh, generally uh, stayed for long periods of time because of the high levels of professionalism, which you'd expect to see across the police, but because obviously those, those added levels of responsibilities, there's, I think there's an expectation that this is a high level of discipline required around safety and, and risk assessments, etc. Is, is it a place where people stay? Is there a longevity in that for people? Because obviously it's such a hard place to get into. Well, again, you know, it's another great question because ironically when I joined so I, I went there in February 96 and we went in to see the chief inspector um, and he, he said to us just to let you know you're leaving in February 1999 we had a three-year tenure and I'm thinking and I remember jokingly saying oh, I won't see the millennium then will I no you won't that was the answer <laughs> I thought well I'll have to be careful here because I haven't got much of a sense of humor you know um, I mean, obviously, I stayed longer, but they had a three-year tenure for ARV officers, unless you became an instructor or, or an SFO, as it was then, a specialist firearms officer. Um, and all I, want, I, I genuinely, all I want to do is be an ARV officer. I loved being in the cars, going around, driving around, dealing with spontaneous calls. So yeah, it was kind of like that was a bit of a shocker. But obviously, then they realised that they, the churn that you get a natural churn, and and also there was a couple of high-profile police shootings that had, had happened that was starting to have an impact on people's views on becoming armed officers and staying armed officers. So that was having an effect. So they then changed it to five years tenure and then it increased, increased, increased. The only, the only caveat on that, Ollie, though, I think is you have to be careful with that to let people stay indefinitely. Uh, and we promoted in-house a lot, which can cause issues. But whilst you have this incredible experience to let someone someone stay there for uh, you know 15 20 years is a long time and we have to be very conscious of that but again that's down to management and making sure that the people are who are have been there a long time are still doing what they should be doing uh, and helping younger people coming in new people coming in as well and i think yeah there's lots of fingers being pointed at pad p at the moment in the met about how long people stay there for and they're looking at a tenure there uh, and, 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 you know, perhaps that is the way forward. I don't, I don't know. Um, 
but we have to be conscious that you to leave people in a lifestyle to leave them in a farms unit for a 20 plus years is a long time and we need to be careful and mindful of that um, about what they're exposed to and how they're performing still your firearms career uh, from start to sort of your firearms career from start to finish if we look when you joined in 1996 we had the 1996 Docklands bombing and if we look to the latter part of your career we've had we've had attacks on the on London such as 7-7 and other terrorist incidents uh, along the way you know that the, the the threat landscape on the UK from different elements of of terrorism whether it be from the IRA or this Islamic fundamentalism has has changed quite dramatically in how we police and how we respond what was that like for you on the front line of armed response knowing that you know having to respond to these different issues over the period of your career where the threats changed dramatically in terms of we once you know there was once terrorism where the individuals and the terrorists wouldn't want to get hurt they'd flee but suddenly to this sort of suicidal type mentality where you may may have to go sort of toe to toe and challenge these individuals is a very different dynamic so the evolution of your response i must admit over the years would appear to have changed quite dramatically oh absolutely i mean you know the main threat when i joined was the ra um uh, and you know again tactically you know as you said before they, they would plant bombs sometimes give a warning, code of warning, but they didn't want to kill themselves. Um, so, you know, we had a different threat then. We had March 1996, Dunblane, where, you know, the guy walks into the school and kills all those poor and innocent young children. So we had that kind of threat where we had, you know, potentially people with mental health issues that would take a gun and go and commit mass atrocities like that. Uh, and that cemented even more so about why I wanted to be on the armed response fields because dumb blame came at a time when I'd been at the unit for a month and I thought, that's exactly, that's exactly why I am an armed response vehicle officer. Because of people like that, that I need to be there in a position I can do something about that and stop that or at least neutralise that at some stage during it, you know. Um, but then as things progressed, you know, we, the IRA, uh, we had the Good Friday Agreement, I think it was 1999, somewhere around there. Um, and then terrorism changed, as you said quite rightly. You know, some, and suddenly we have these people that are willing to die for their cause uh, and, and commit mass atrocities and die in the process. And then, you know, our tactics changed. You know, we looked at Kratos with the, you know, shoot to kill type um, policy where, you know, I had trained to shoot to neutralise the threat, you know, um, and shoot to stop. Um, and, you know, things changed, um, you know, quite substantially um, and I was at the latter part you know also the early part of that and the latter part of my career so I never as an operational officer had to face anything like that like my colleagues did but certainly as a federation representative that's where it started to come in where I was the federation representative for the Stockwell incident um, and what those officers went through uh, and um, you know so I, I saw things evolve evolve you know whether it's the right expression and how things changed, and, and it worried me. I mean, it really, you know, the 7-7 the bombings. I mean, I was at home that day. I used to travel to Wallgate. All my colleagues used to go to Wallgate to get the you know, tube to go to Lima Street, where we are based. And I remember watching that thinking, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's come to the shores, isn't it, this suicide bomber scenario. Uh, and then shortly after that, obviously, we had the, the Stockwell shooting, which involved my colleagues. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It, things have changed horrendously horrendously over the last couple of decades. 
And, and with that, to, to add an extra layer of complexity, I think the involvement of violent crime in London particularly has changed dramatically where we see more and more young people um, uh, taking the erroneous risks of carrying large instruments, zombie knives, firearms. Obviously, Trident was brought in in the 90s to tackle originally black-on-black crime, but has evolved over time to dealing with serious and violent crime. Um, That equally even presents another dynamic to the point where inevitably your armed response units are going to respond to an incident where they do have to make a decision to neutralize and stop a threat which has a number of ramifications both for the individual concerned and their families but equally the police officers and those that are in attendance in terms of investigations around accountability and decisions that were made prior to during and after an incident in terms of assessing and analyzing risk. You've been in this world of representation and supporting police officers going through these different difficult challenges what was it that drew you into sort of this federation representation in supporting firearms officers when they did inevitably or had to make that difficult decision well i think you know there's two issues there really i suppose you know for me key issues are firstly i always recognize there should be a you know a, a transparent investigation with the utmost integrity into any of our actions. If we have discharged our firearms and we seriously injured or fatally wounded someone, there has to be an investigation. So that's the first point. I was always absolutely, that is completely right. The other thing is that that helped me in my career as a Federation representative and and latterly running the PFOA is that I always recognise that the people that we shot, my colleagues shot, and some, many died, um, their families weren't to blame. The families, you know, were their families. You know, they weren't involved in this. Their loved one did what they did for whatever reason. But families, you know, they suffered as well. So, you know, my colleagues suffered, and my colleagues' family suffered, but I was very conscious that there was, there was other people there suffering, and that was the families of the people we shot. And we should never lose sight of that, because if we lose sight of that, we lose all respect for people and actually lose respect for the job that we are there doing. And that's, you know, stopping violent crime, stopping criminals, and sometimes having to revert to using lethal force. So that's really important to me. But I think um, I saw a huge impact. And one of the things that led me to become a Federation rep was the way that some of the officers were treated. And I've always said this, um, the police service as a whole are masters at shafting their own people. Complete masters at shafting their own people. Uh, and I've seen that more today pr- probably than when I was in. And, and I don't think that's a good thing. You know, I think that people, police officers are easy prey for investigators because of the leverage they have over the fact that someone's career, their livelihood, etc., etc. And And as we all know, and as you'll know yourself, Ollie, there's so many pitfalls in policing and so many easy ways to drop yourself in it because you have the best intent in the world but you'll do something a little bit out of how you should do it and someone will jump all over you if, if they want to. So I thought that firearms officers were getting a bit of a rough deal out of everything they were doing. Uh, and, and I was incredibly proud of my colleagues. I used to watch the SFOs when they did their stuff. I thinking, oh my God, you know, incredible. Watch our instructors, the professionalism of our instructors. And watch my colleagues on the ARVs doing such a great job and risking their lives for people they'd never met before, complete strangers. And I think I thought they deserved to be looked after. And I, you know, got on a bit of a 
my high hill or whatever to sort of say, look, we need to look after these people. They're they're a valuable um, valuable to us, a value commodity of you know the, the training that we do. They need to be looked after, and I didn't think they were being looked after well enough. Uh, and I also saw the knock-on effect that had on their family. So to me, it, it went in itself to become a police federation representative to do something about it, to assist them. Because it's no good ranting and raving, and, but you've got to step up, haven't you? Put yourself there. And I took on lots of senior officers and got the old red card from many of them to get out of the office and things like that. So I learnt my trade quite you know, um, painfully sometimes. But I was passionate about supporting my colleagues. Passionate. To this day... I'm passionate about supporting them. Had you had had you come from had had you your family um, come from sort of working class roots where unions were important in terms of supporting employees, good strong representation to challenge where there needed to be support. Was that something that was sort of ingrained in your sort of culture from family life? No, not at all. Do you know. I think I, this is never a good question because I ask myself about why did I why was I so passionate about being a federation rep? Why was I so passionate about sticking up for people and um do you know i think a lot of it comes from being bullied when i was younger maybe um uh, when i had hair i had very um <laughs> blonde curly hair goldilockses and i took that quite you know like people took the mickey out of me at school about it and i felt a little bit oh you know my hair you know they're taking the mickey out of my hair and as i went through life and then i joined the army and i got bullied a bit in the army uh, initially um, when i was in training um and then I, I kind of like turned you know, against bullies. I hate people bullying people. And I'd watch things on TV and see people doing things. And I thought, you know, you can't let people do that to people. And I, I was very vociferous in that. And I was, I guess, a little bit of a barrel room lawyer, really, saying, you can't do that. You know? And I'd go to briefings when we were on the ARVs. And they used to take the mickey out of me because I said to an inspector one day, you can't talk to mickey like that, one of our colleagues. And I challenged the inspector. And, like, and that st- stayed with me on my ARV career. You know, you can't talk to Mickey like that. And, and that's how it was, <laughs> I guess. I just didn't, I didn't want my colleagues to be bullied or pushed into something that they shouldn't have been. So I've been very lucky to interview a number of people on the podcast, what we're up to 95 episodes, third season of the Protect and Serve podcast. Now, one of those guests is the very well the very well known and incredible human being Tony Long who was involved in a number of shootings throughout his policing career but none more famously than probably the Azel Rodney incident which led to Tony being charged uh, with his murder as a result of that incident now i i, I you know Tony and i've talked about this at length in terms of um, that particular day, you know, 100 days out from retirement, that process that he went through in terms of that what occurred and, and the stress that he went through. But from a federation rep perspective, what's going on in the background in terms of the support for someone like Tony who's being subjected to interview after interview, media scrutiny, a community in absolute anger? You know, there's just so many different factors on that. What sort of support mechanisms can you put in place to make things just that little bit better for him in terms of trying to navigate what is seems to be an absolute minefield of challenges? Well, I remember that one very um, clearly, uh, the Azel Rodney um, shooting that Tony was involved in. And um, I remember going to see Tony that day. Um, and um, I was always conscious that, you know, I must never forget about what these um, men and women have been through. When, they, when they're involved in a shooting. So I turn up there. 
I want them to see me as their support, but I'm also conscious that I don't know how they're going to react to what they've been through. Um, so basically, um, I, you know, I was very conscious that they needed support immediately. That comes in various different ways. As a federation representative, it's very important to get them legal support. Whilst I'm there as a crutch, so to speak, uh, the legal support's immensely important. We have some amazing lawyers, um, you know, Scott Ingram, Colin Reynolds, people like that, who used to come out to support the officers. Um, so that's the most important thing. But I think, for me, um, it was later down the line where I saw my role really come into its own, where, you know, a few weeks later, when they've done all the legal stuff, when they've written all their notes, been through the various different stages of note writing and evidential uh, bits and pieces... It was what the fallout was like after that, and also the the politics involved. Um, you know, and I, I got quite a grasp on what I thought was going to be a long term instant, you know, investigative wise. Um, and it always seemed to me there was a little bit of a two tier investigative system in this country, where you know we shoot a terrorist at a um, an attack in London, for example, uh, and we can shoot them multiple times and, you know, the investigation is done and dusted within a few weeks and the, the officers are back on duty or whatever. And then you get something like Tony or the Mark Duggan incident where the officers are off for, a, you know, a one year, two years. Harry Stanley, six years. You know, you just, you know, there's, there seems to be an inability to investigate certain shootings as, as quickly as others. I don't know what that is, you know, but there's a lot of politics um, coming to it. And, you know, my job was to support these officers through this, to reassure them, to keep in contact with them, to make sure they knew exactly what was going on behind the scenes, because that's really important as well. Uh, and, um, and Tony's one dragged on, as you know, for a number of years. But, you know, I never doubted Tony's professionalism. Uh, I knew he was, a, you know, he was like someone we all looked up to. You know, come on, he was a role model as a farms officer, he was professional. He was good at his job. Good at his job, you know, very professional. He's training and he helped younger officers like myself. Um, and, um, but he had a huge challenge there. And um, a lot of things conspire against officers during his investigations. And that is the process itself, the investigative system, you know, the investigators themselves, how they feel about it, and the politics, sadly. So I wanted to talk about the establishment of the PFOA. Was there any backlash to you establishing this organisation which specifically looked out to supporting firearms officers? Because I suppose being playing devil's advocate here, police officers say, well, we want, a, we want an association which supports everybody. What's so unique about firearms officers? Obviously, there was this uniqueness that you saw. But what was the backlash that you faced as a result of establishing this new support mechanism for firearms policing? Well, again, it's a, I'm glad you've asked this question, Ollie, because it's something that I've never spoken openly about, um, particularly. But I would say it was probably the lowest part of my police service when I started the PFLA, which people would probably find quite surprising. What should have been something we should all have celebrated, um, I was subjected to harassment, bullying from people within policing who didn't like what I was doing professional jealousy um, and it, I lost a lot of sleep over it. It affected my, my, my late wife um, as well and, and it probably had a knock-on effect on my children as well probably, you know. Um, but it was, it was horrific and people seemed to think, well, what's he doing? I mean, someone wrote to Police Review um, and wrote a scathing you know, page of why are they, how dare they do this? There's a police federation that does this. You know, if you want to get counselling and avail yourself of that sport, 
there's the NHS. I've got the review, you know, I've got the, the article. And then a circular went out from the Met Police Federation saying that whilst they can't stop us doing something like this, you can avail yourself of the services of the NHS if you need counselling or the, the Met Occupational Health. And this is there, you know, this is stuff that's there. And I was completely and utterly knocked, knocked down over it. I just thought, I'm trying to do something good here. Um, you know, I don't even know what it's going to look like. You know, maybe we'll get a few hundred people that want to join it uh, and we'll look after the families and, and support the officers. And, 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 you know, because the Federation can't do the things we do because it's not set up to do that. And I get that. I got that. But I was astounded at the way I was treated. Uh, and it took Paul McKeever, the late Paul McKeever, who was the chairman of the Police Federation in Wales End, who was a lovely, lovely man. I miss him. Great guy. Um, he called me in one day. He said, he's, I remember him sitting down and said, you're a good man, aren't you? I went, yeah, I'm a good man. And I'm doing something I think is good, Paul. And he said, you've got the best intentions here. I went, yes, I have, Paul. He goes, then I'll support it. That's all he needed, you know. Um, but certain people didn't like it. Uh, and I look back now and it's a great position to be in now and think what we've done uh, and you know then they were wrong simple as that they were wrong so how quickly did the federation grow the firearms federation grow in terms of your membership well I, I mean I, as I said I remember going around the corridors of Lehman Street and um, bumping into Adam I won't say his surname who was our first member we ever signed up and saying to him look do you fancy this look this is what I want to try and do blah 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 and the guys I had a great relationship with every officer you know every man and woman in that unit I, I, I loved all of them you know dearly uh, and they all signed up and I thought maybe we'll get three or four hundred well we're nearly eleven thousand now uh, and I literally picked up the almanac which is a police um, telephone directory that we had then I probably haven't got it now and I said to myself I sat in my office I said I'm going to open it up and wherever the page opens up, I'm going to phone that firearms unit for that force and see if they want to join as well. And can you believe I opened up Guernsey? And I'm thinking, Guernsey? They haven't got, surely they haven't got a firearms unit. And there it was. I phoned up and I phoned up this number that was in this almanac and this guy called JP, Jean-Pierre, who's a good friend of mine now. He's just retired. He answered it and I went, hello, mate. You know, my name's Mark Williams, the um, SO19 in the Met. I'm the Fed rep here. I want to start an association up to support firearms officers and their families. Do you fancy a bit of it? He went, yep, and I'll pay for all my officers here to be in it, 25 of them. And that was it. And it went, gathered pace, and then uh, a few of the chief constables got on board with it, very supportive. Um, Peter Fahey up in GMP, uh, he was really good. So Peter, yeah. um, and, you know, and, it, and we, got, we got growing support. And actually... In fairness, most of the federations got it as well. And some of the federations were fantastic, you know, because I had a lot of contacts around the country uh, and they were really good, really good about it. And I, I didn't want people to see it as a threat. I mean, we weren't going to do legal cover and things like that. You know, we weren't going to do group insurance. It was just a charity, as it became, a small charity to support officers and their families. You've, in your role as a police fed rep, I've got here 43 police shootings, including dealing with the aftermath of the Harry Stanley shooting in 1999, which led to the first commissioner's commendation, which you received. Can you tell us about that particular one? And more broadly, having taken part as a fed rep in, those, in, 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 in 43 matters of police discharge firearms, what that does to you as an individual in terms of your experience and knowledge of the difficulties and challenges that officers face in terms of these matters? 
I mean, I picked up that um, because the shooting was in 1999 and I became a federate in 2000. In 2001, my predecessor um, was medically retired from the service. Uh, he was a great guy, fantastic federate. I took on the Harry Stanley um, issue. That went to two inquests. They were arrested for murder uh, and manslaughter and God knows what else. Uh, and managed uh, through another colleague of mine, Dave Bloxage, uh, who was at um, the DPG then, to source a guy in America, um, Dr. Bill Lewinsky, uh, who came over and we did a reconstruction. And anyway, the, the, the officers, were exoner officers were exonerated. And because of um, the work I'd done and one of my other Fed reps, Jack, where we were given a commission's accommodation, I think we were the first Fed reps to get anything like that um, from uh, uh, Sir Ian Blair, Lord Blair as he is now. And I was you know, completely overwhelmed by that. Um, so, you know, I was very fortunate in that respect to do that. But um, I look back at those 43 incidents and I can remember most of them. You know, it's incredible, isn't it? And they all had, they were all different. Every incident is different because you've got different individuals involved. I look back at some that, you know, for example, Mark Duggan that led to the riots and all the issues that went with that. I look at Stockwell and we shoot a completely innocent man, you know, and seeing his family at the... The public inquiry. I look at Azel Rodney. I, you know, I can think of them all. You know, but there was one in particular, and and rather embarrassingly, I can't remember the name of the person who shot. But it's probably not that important in respect of how I felt about that. Is that it was during the um, the Stockwell public inquiry we had another fatal shooting, and we were called away from the inquiry to go to, I think it was Harold Hill um, in North London somewhere. And a guy was shot there by my colleagues um, who had real mental health issues. And he was on the phone to police at the time, holding, I think he had two guns. But he was actually on the phone to the police. Uh, and it was just horrible. And it was horrible what my colleagues had to go through. And I saw the impact it had on them. But I felt really sad in the respect that people weren't interested in the guy that was shot. You know, we had the Mark Saunders shooting back in 2008, the barrister who was shot, and that created a lot of media attention because of who he was and the role he was, you know, he was as a barrister. And various other incidents that got high, you know, a lot of news coverage. But this guy, for some reason, just went completely under the radar because of the Stockwell Public Inquiry. And I found that really sad because he's still a human being. He was a person, he had a family, he probably had loved ones. He probably had children, I don't, I don't know, but he had parents and whatever. And through his actions, through his illness, it resulted in him losing his life. And my colleagues have to live with that. They have to accept that they did their jobs, they did their job properly, and given the circumstances, they had to do what they did. They had no other alternative. But how sad is that, that we don't remember his name? We don't, no one cares about him. And that really hurts me. And it's weird, isn't it? It's completely, people think it's probably arse about face. But, I mean, there's some people that we've shot that I really don't give a monkey's about. You know, I've got to be honest with you, because, you know, they did what they did, and I'm talking about terrorists and things like that. You know, I really don't care about them. But there are individuals that have got illnesses and things like that, mate, that I, I you know, I do feel for them and their families. How, how, is, how, does it, how does the support change that you provide when you're dealing with incidents such as uh, the Jean-Charles de Menzies Stockwell shooting where we we do shoot an innocent man, but that is a result of an assessment made by very senior officers. Um, Cressida Dick was in charge of that operation. You know, there was a whole inquiry about that. How do officers 
come to terms with that is is that a long process for them what i i imagine the support mechanism for knowing that they've taken part in something all for the right reasons um which is most importantly fundamentally critically to remember but knowing that obviously what fell out from that and knowing that this gentleman was a, a, a bystander and somebody identified as a wrong target how do we support officers through what must be quite a harrowing experience well of course the issue for that was that when we first that happened and I went out to that um, and saw the guy shortly after it had happened and we all truly believed we'd shot a terrorist Uh, and then to find out 24 hours later that he was an innocent member of the public um, it was bad enough for me but can you imagine what it's like for the firearms officers and that team involved because you know the other thing that we we mustn't lose sight of uh, you know respect for the family obviously um, John Charles's family, but the fact that those officers deployed from their vehicles ran down a tube station after what had happened only a couple of weeks prior to this with the bombings, and basically were running to their death. Because had he detonated, then they'd all been killed. We'd be having a conversation now about the ten SO19 uh, SFOs that got killed that day, um, not about one individual that sadly lost his life because of a sequence of events. So it's really difficult, but the process itself, you know, it, it still is the same. You know, the post incident procedure would be the same. The support for the officers. I mean, with the PFOA now, we didn't have the PFOA then, but, you know, now we have the ability to give them and their families an immense, immensely more support than they would get from the organisation. And also, don't forget, there are a lot of officers don't trust the organisation. They don't trust the fact that they're going to get the best support. And we'll work with the organisation, whatever force it is, we'll always work with them. You know, we're not, you know, we're not, it's not a them and us, but we're, we have the ability to do a lot more and offer a lot more different um, bands of support for people, you know. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how sometimes my colleagues or friends get on, you know, get through their lives because it must play on their minds for every day they'll wake up perhaps. But there is... A way to deal with these things if you get the correct support and you can you can and you said right at the start of you about compartmentalizing things they can do that i mean look what tony went through tony long went through with the you know the first two shootings he was involved in you know uh, you know it, people are capable of doing it we expect our servicemen to do it and servicemen and women to do that in the forces as well um and as long as they've got that support and the other thing ollie as well is that that support doesn't just last for six months we have to be prepared to support these officers for years. You know, if one of those officers involved in Stockwell came to us now and said, I'm having a bit of a hard time, we can support them and do stuff. Yeah, and we have to remember the officers that have retired and are in civilian life now, you know, they may still be affected by what happened to them in the police service. So we need to support them, and that's what we do. You know, we can support them and their families all the way through. Am I right in saying that recently um, there's been changes or alterations into how firearms officers are perceived in terms of how they perceive threat and how they assess that in terms of rulings that have been made, which could potentially make their jobs quite difficult in terms of their justification for use of firearms? Yeah, I think this is quite concerning. I don't get myself caught up too much in the politics of all this, you know, and the legality of it. But my concern is that the biggest weapon we used to have in our armory was our honestly held belief. Our honestly held belief, because we're not superhumans. 
you know, these officers, these men and women are not superhumans, they're just highly trained police officers. But you know yourself, you know, people, you know, the criminals don't go to the police briefing, so they don't know what to do. They do their own thing. Things pan out differently to what we expect. No police officer goes out to have a collision with a member of the public in their police car and cause them, you know, an injury or, or kill them. Or, and no police firearms officer goes out to kill someone or shoot someone. You know, that mustn't be forgotten. The now that the, the bar's been raised um, around honesty, health, belief, and, you know, um, you know, we had this issue with balance of probabilities, didn't we, for discipline as well. You know, it's really up against them. And, and it's almost like, um, I've always felt, when the, um, the rulings came in around, you know, officers being um, uh, separated after police shootings and not being able to discuss the issue at all until all their notes were made. Now, I, I got that to a certain extent, but it felt like, what are you doing now? What are you doing to these men and women who are volunteering to carry weapons? You're treating them like suspects right from the off by saying, you know, you mustn't talk about this until you've written your notes. You can be separated if we believe there's any issues here. We're going to put an additional um, uh, officer in to make sure that the integrity and transparency of this investigation remains. And, and it just goes on and on and on. And you're thinking, my God, you know, we've got body-worn video now. The evidence is all there. And, you know, it's like there is a, uh, there's a shooting that took place in the Met uh, about a year ago now and the officer's still suspended. Now, that's all on body-worn video. You know, we, if, you, if you're an investigator, you've got a film of this, you've got the person that's saying, I fired the gun, you've got the gun, and you've got the person that's been shot and everything around it, and all these witnesses. How much more do we need? You know, because what we're going to do is we're going to box these officers into a corner one day, if we're not careful. We're going to box these people, these volunteers, into a corner, and they're going to say, enough's enough. And young men and women aren't going to come forward and, and volunteer to carry a firearm. You know, I think we've got a big enough problem in policing now with people becoming police officers, let alone giving them the added burden of carrying a firearm as well. You know, we have a, we have a big problem. And I'm not saying that, you know, that it can be solved overnight, but we need to look carefully at what we're doing. Now, this has come in now. You know, the law is going to change, isn't it, on this? And it's going to come in and it's there to stay. Uh, and, I, and without a doubt, it'll put people off becoming firearms officers. You know, we already have a problem where forces are robbing Peter to pay Paul to put, you know, we, you know, Essex will try and recruit from Norfolk and the Met tries to recruit from everywhere around it. Uh, and, you know, they're offering bounties to join, you know, and uh, additional payments, things like that, just to get people to do the job. We shouldn't need to do that. When I became an armed response vehicle officer, I did the job because I wanted to be an armed response vehicle officer. There was not, the only financial game was that I probably got a bit more overtime. But to actually say to people, we're going to give you this amount of money as a bounty, you know, to come and join us and you're going to get this and you're going to get that. What are we saying then? You know, it, that's, that's concerning to me. But I think, going back to your original question, it doesn't surprise me that this has happened. It concerns me. Um, but... My job now, and that's a job for the Police Federation of the Wales to, to argue the point over, and the police service itself, my job now is, is to look after these people uh, and do what we can to support them and their families. And that's something I'm really proud of. And that's something I get a buzz from doing still. And it's something I'm capable of doing. I can't get involved in the, the legal side of things.
Yeah, it's interesting because I, I follow uh, a barrister out of Sergeants in Chambers, Elliot Gold, who put out a series of tweets which said the Supreme Court has held that the test for the use of force in police misconduct hearings is the civil test, not the criminal test. Insofar as firearms officers may have been trained on the basis of the criminal test for self-defence, this could affect the officer's justification. Training could also have an important bearing on whether conduct constitutes misconduct or gross misconduct. The use of the civil test does not require a misconduct hearing to look beyond what was in the mind of the officer. If an officer uses force based on defective intelligence, it will not necessarily be unreasonable if he had not had no reason to suspect the info was unreliable. So it's just navigating the difference between you know, this now this civil test on the balance of probabilities, which is obviously the greatest challenge that people have been pushing back on in terms of the you know what this means for firearms officers in them coming forward and and. And putting themselves in a significant position of vulnerability. But that's, you know, probably another podcast in itself. But I I wanted to talk about your work now more broadly in the PFOA. You're doing some fantastic work across the UK, PIP presentations all over the UK. You do various media interviews. What's the future for the PFOA in terms of your plans, in terms of the support you provide, the support services that are out there? Um, There are many sort of charitable groups such as PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing and others that play an important role in the welfare and chaired by people like Lobby Thornton, ex-firearms officer. You've got Gary Hayes there at PTSD 999. So many organisations that are providing unique support. For you particularly at the PFOA, what's important for you guys and girls in the next five years? Uh, Well, I've got to retire at some stage. That's going to happen in the next five years. (laughs) Probably, but I think um, you know. I think that you know the future's good. I think you know we we concentrate on our core business, and the core, core business is keeping firearms officers at work, and those that are off work, getting them back. We work with all the other charities. We're part part of Police Charities UK. Um, Lobby's a mate of mine. We work with Lobby uh, Trojan Wellbeing. Um, it's important that we all work together um, because there is a place for everybody. Um, but for us personally, we have a membership of just just under 11,000. Um, it's about making sure that all our services are, are, are fit for purpose. You know, we've got a fantastic new phone support line now that we fund ourselves 24-7. People can ring it, officers can ring it and their families. Save six lives having a phone support line. Um, it's also got a GP service on it so they can speak to a doctor and get prescriptions if they need it. You know, we need to provide respite breaks. We need to provide physiotherapy, NLP coaching, every kind of counselling you can imagine. We need to support officers who've got poorly children that may need special treatment and contribute to that um, support as well. We do everything we can. Uh, and, and, and people, you know, since 2009, when we didn't have 11,000 members on day one, obviously, we spent over £4 million in direct support. That's not to run the plug, you know, that's four million pounds in direct support of our members, which is astonishing. It's four it's five pounds a month now. It was four pounds up until the beginning of this year, so it'd been four pounds since two thousand nine. It's now five pounds a month. Um, you know, we've we've got amazing membership, but we've got amazing members. You know, people, you know, they contact us and say lovely things. I've got, and most importantly, Ollie, I think, you know, I I guess I'm seen as the face of it. You know, that's just you know i'm i'm not unhappy with that that's nice but you know as as much as i do mate and you mentioned your wife earlier about the work she does behind us are amazing people uh, you know i have an incredible team 
Um, you know, we've got Mick Crozier as ops manager, we've got Hannah, Cheryl, Rachel, Sarah, Helen, Gary, all these people behind the scenes who make me look good and make my job easy. You know, they are doing all the work. They're incredible people. And I listen to them. I listen to how uh, the girls in the office have, have come on over the years talking to officers. You know, I've listened to them take calls from officers who are in tears on the end of the phone. And we can direct them to this support that we can provide. And that's a great feeling that we can help people. And when you save people's lives, that's the best ever. If you've stopped, you know, we stopped one officer from uh, completing suicide, then that's incredible, you know. Um, so, look, we're extremely humbled and honoured to be able to do the work we do. Um, but our members make it possible and our team deliver that incredible work uh, and that's and that's you know i'm really proud of that honestly I, you know i've been i've been completely i look back i've had i've had a few shitty things have happened in my life but on the whole i had the most amazing police career and i got looked after um right at the end of my police service in 2013 when my wife became very ill with cancer and i remember my boss alistair sutherland who's the deputy at um btp saying to me, you know, how's Debbie and whatever. And, and, and he said, this was in March 2013. He said, when do you retire? I said, November, Governor. And he said, I'll see you in November, Mark. You need to go back and look after your family now. You've done enough. And I never forgot that. And I never forgot how he supported me. And Brian Dillon, his superintendent, supported me. Uh, and of course, I went back to work within that time. But he said, he, he didn't put any pressure on me. He said, come back whenever you want, but I don't want to see you very often, you know. I never forgot that and that inspired me and made me feel like I do to this day because there are a lot of people that leave the police service bitter and angry about the way they've been treated I hate that you know I feel sorry for them that they leave like that and I try and encourage people to you know see the good side of the service because the police service gave me a good living it helped me put my kids through good schools you know it gave us holidays and things like that so I, I, I'm appreciative of that and I as I always say to people, I rose to the dizzy height of constable. You know, that's the way I, you know, I, but I was happy with that. It was my choice. I had the choice like everyone else, like you, Ollie, as well, to take promotion. I chose not to because I love what I did. And I equally love what I do to this day. And that's why I feel like I do about it and about policing. I care passionately. Can I ask you a little bit of a loaded question? Do you think there is an argument for an alternative to the National Police Federation? Do you know, I was expecting this question and I have my views on the Police Federation of Wales, but what we mustn't forget is there are branch boards out there, like I was a member of a branch board, and fed reps locally at police stations who do incredible work. Incredible work, you know, and I think, um, and that's what I did, you know, I enjoyed doing it. Um, I think the Police Federation of Wales haven't handled things very well recently. Um, in fact, there's a lot of very angry police officers out there. I think they're a bit antiquated in their ways. Enhanced pensions, you know, what's all that about? You know, um, I think they've just brought in a CEO. Well, why do you need a CEO when you've got police officers who come out of police forces to run the Federation? They're bringing a, a CEO. I mean, why do we want that? You know, should we not have a secretary then and a chairman if you've got a CEO? I don't understand. You know, it's a bit... I always reminded me of David Brent in the office when, you know, he, they're about to make redundancies and he takes people on. I mean, what's all that about? Why do you do things like that? Uh, um, so some of the decision making is a bit, a bit skew-whiffed. Um, the people within it, you know, I think they're, they're all trying their best to do their best, but it's really difficult, you know, when there's so many of them. 
and it's a bit of a monster, isn't it? It's so huge. But I concentrate on the local side of federations, you know, the branch boards. I think they all do fabulous work and they're passionate about looking after their members. Um, but do I have, do I see the Police Federation in Wales and do I see the future for it? Not really, no. I think it needs to change. Uh, and it needs to change more than bringing in a CEO. It needs to look at itself. Um, but the branch boards do a fabulous job. And they're the ones at the front line supporting the officers. And that's what really counts. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute fascinating hour of conversation with you about your life in British policing. And I think more importantly, we focused on the support that you provide to families and officers that are involved in firearms related work inside policing. It's uh, often a thankless task, but often the one that is there at the pointy end when things really do go bad very very quickly and I think it's just inspirational to know that there are you and your incredible team that you've described so much behind you that is there to support people often sometimes at their darkest times and when they find themselves in a bit of a pickle because it's more broadly it's not just the officer it's their families it's their children it's their wider communities that are often affected by what's going on so thank you ever so much for your service thank you ever so much for what you're doing now and continue to do and and hopefully that retirement is looming not too far around the corner but you've got an incredible team behind you to take forward the pfoa and uh, if people want to get involved in the PFOA, if we've got people that aren't aware of the membership or they're people that are, are hedging towards a career in firearms, because I've got a lot of listeners here that are police, police members, what can they do to sign up? Well, I mean, basically the best way to go is through our website, um, pfoa.co.uk. It's all on there, Ollie. Um, uh, and of course, we're always happy to speak to people who are looking at firearms as a career um, uh, path so you know we're always happy to speak to people but Ollie can I thank you as well for what you're doing because I think people forget uh, it's not just a podcast you do you go on television you explain a lot about policing and clear up some bits and pieces that need to be cleared up sometimes that the public because the public are watching but you know your support doesn't go unnoticed uh, and your podcast is vitally important um, to share information uh, to reach out to people so thank you for everything you've done no it's an absolute pleasure i you know i i um i find myself doing more for policing now outside of the organization than i probably did when i was in it so i find it incredibly cathartic but thank you for your kind words so on that note we'll see you next time thank you very much for joining us and we wish you all the best for the future thank you this podcast is brought to you by the public safety foundation the public safety foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.